You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, We're studying these Sunday evenings uh, what's often called the farewell discourse of Jesus, beginning in John chapter 13 and ending in chapter 17, and we've come this evening to the beginning of chapter 16. No idea where it is in the church Bible, but uh, if you get to the right-hand side in the beginning of the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John's Gospel, and you should find it fairly easily, even if you're not familiar with the New Testament. Jesus said, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. I think I may have said before that when we study a passage like this, uh, with a week passing between one study and another, uh, we almost inevitably miss something of the flow of the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And there's a a temptation and probably a danger that we look at these passages 
as though they existed just so that we could have weekly Sunday evening sermons on them. But if you sit down and read through John's Gospel from 13 through 17, which I hope you'll do on a number of occasions in these days, you would realize, I think, that the disciples are being, as we would say, taken through the ringer by the Lord Jesus. They began by being embarrassed by His washing their feet. They were then disturbed because Jesus said one of them was going to betray Him, and then uh, publicly He told Simon Peter that before the cock crowed three times, He would actually have denied that He knew His Savior. And so you can sense that there were deep emotions in the room. Then uh, suddenly Jesus begins to speak to them about comfort and trusting in the Lord. I mean, having exposed the fact that one of them is going to betray Him, that they are all going to run away from Him, one will plainly deny Him, uh, out of the blue He says, so don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a a very remarkable transition, and He gives them much comfort. The chief comfort is that He is not going to leave them as orphans, although He is going to go from them, and that's another element in the disturbance of their emotions. They are going to be given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will bring them into a profound sense of union and communion with the Lord Jesus. And so, now the graph of the evening is rising up. Uh, He's telling them the wonders they will experience through the Holy Spirit, and then he uses this famous illustration of how they are united to Him as branches are united to a vine, and that in the future their lives are going to bear much fruit for the glory of the Father, and in this way they're going to prove to be His disciples. And uh, just then the graph turns again, and it's down again. And Jesus begins to speak to them about how in the future they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to suffer, how they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue, they're going to be despised. And I don't think it takes a great deal of insight to realize that in this passage that we've just read together, Jesus is reading their faces. He's reading their emotions. He actually tells them, you're not asking me any questions now, are you? There had been several questions before. Lord, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? But you can almost sense that the atmosphere now is so, is so dense and heavy that none of them dares open their mouths, but it's obvious what all of them are thinking. And so, in these verses, I think Jesus is actually answering three questions that the disciples are wordlessly asking in order to lead them on. He is, as it were, bringing out into the open the questions they dare not ask Him, but He knows they they need answered. And these questions, I think, are essentially these, the first that emerges in verse 1. 
Why are you telling us this now? Why are you telling us this now? The second question is the question that emerges in verse 4. Why did you not tell us this before now? And the third question is the question that arises in most of the rest of the passage from verse 7 through verse 15. Why do you have to leave us now? So, why are you telling us this now? Why did you not tell us this before now? And why, in the first instance, do you have to leave us now? Now, it's natural, I think, that that first question would arise. Why are you telling us this now? You have a friend who tells you that four months ago he was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and your first reaction in sympathy is going to be one of affection and love, but then you're going to say to him, why did you not tell me this before? And this is the instinctive and natural response of the disciples to this whole narrative Jesus is setting before them, how He is going to be taken from them, all that's going to happen, of which He seems to be, have a remarkably detailed knowledge. And the question in their minds is, why are, you, why are you telling us this now? And He gives them the answer, because if you know this, it will keep you from falling away. Actually, the verb that John uses is the verb from which we get the word scandalized. You are scandalized by something. It becomes a stumbling block to you. And Jesus is saying you are going to face situations and circumstances that could easily scandalize you. Christians often do, don't they, especially in their earlier days. Here these disciples were in the flush of all the enthusiasm of being with Jesus, the transformation they felt that He had worked in their lives, the sense of being caught up in something far bigger than themselves, and now difficulties, trials, persecutions, they're all going to flood in. And the danger is to to think it was all a myth, it was not real. Uh, I was imagining that the life of a disciple was a great and glorious thing. And Jesus is saying, I want to forewarn you that these things will happen, because when they do happen, you won't be surprised. It's very interesting that much later on in the New Testament, Simon Peter, on whose mind and life this night left an indelible impression, says in his first letter to Christians who were facing suffering, trial, and persecution, don't be surprised. And of course, the reason they are not to be surprised is the simple teaching that Jesus has been giving to them that He has come into the world to be a crucified Savior. 
he is going to suffer and be rejected. And he's explained to them the logic of being a disciple. If they rejected me, then of course they're going to reject you. If they persecute me, then of course they will persecute you. So don't be surprised. And that's why I'm telling you now, so that when it actually happens, you'll be safeguarded. You'll be able to hold on to this thing. Now, this is exactly what Jesus' word forewarned me about. Essentially, a wonderful illustration of the value of being soaked in the Word of God. When you're soaked in the Word of God, there's almost nothing that surprises you. And therefore, you're not destabilized. You're not shocked. You don't lose your poise as a Christian. And then, of course, he adds, doesn't he, here at the end of verse 4, I'm telling you this now also so that when it does happen, you will remember that I warned you. You'll remember what I said, and you'll remember how with that warning, I gave you a wonderful word of encouragement. I won't leave you on your own. Now, they didn't fully understand what this meant yet. I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you on your own. The Spirit is going to come, and He is going to strengthen you, and He is going to make you His witnesses. All this is going to come upon you and wonder of wonders because the Spirit is going to empower you. You will be my witnesses. Now, why does that make such a difference? Well, remember how it made such a difference in the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts at the end of Acts chapter 5, when the apostles had suffered the very things that Jesus was speaking about. And we read how they went back to the rest of the church rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Here they were, and they were almost overwhelmed by the persecution, but it actually was a God-given arena for them to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. Remember how Paul encourages the little church in Philippi who were so anxious about the fact that he was in prison, I think probably in Rome, and he writes to them at the beginning of the letter. He says, don't be discouraged by this. I want you to understand that I'm actually here surrounded by members of the top Roman regiment and they are forced to guard me. And that means they are forced to listen to my teaching of the gospel. And now throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, he says, every single one of them understands the reason this man is a prisoner is because of what Jesus Christ has done in his life. You see, he understood, he got it, and this is why Jesus says, I'm telling you this now so that when it does happen, you'll not become a dislocated believer, but you'll understand 
that this is just a situation into which the Lord has brought you in order that you may bear witness to Him. But then there's a second question that arises, and that's the question, well, then why did you not tell us before now? And you'll notice how he answers that unspoken question. He says, I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you, I didn't tell you this at first. You see, he's answering their unspoken question. The reason I didn't tell you this at first was because I was with you. Now, what's the logic here? Well, it's this. I didn't tell you this at first because I was with you to be the focal point of opposition. But soon I will no longer be with you. I didn't tell you this at first because I've been there to defend you. I've been there to draw the opposition of others. And I've put my body in front of you and defended you. And there's another reason, I think, why he didn't tell them this before now. And the reason is this. He knew that at their level of discipleship, they would simply be utterly distracted. Notice when uh, we have different experiences in life. It may be it may be going to the dentist with apology to the dentist or dentist present, or it may be going to the doctor, maybe an examination. Uh, but the thing looms over us. We're thinking of it as we go to bed at night. We think of it as we get up in the morning. We go through the day. Perhaps we know we're going to meet somebody in two weeks' time. It's going to be a very tense and difficult situation because we know they are hostile to our Christian faith, and we are, we are distracted. And that's one of the reasons Jesus didn't tell them. Interesting, isn't it? Later on in verse 12, he says, I have a tremendous amount more to tell you, but you're not able to bear it yet. And that would have been true of this. They wouldn't have been able to hear that they were going to be persecuted and listen to much more that Jesus was going to say. The girls, if, you had, if you'd told the girls what was going to be their lot in Calcutta, that uh, humanly speaking, their only contribution to the human race by being there might be that there were Bengali men speaking English numbers with a Belfast accent, you, they would have said, well, forget about it the impact of some of these scenes in India. You knew the, the exposure of soul that was going to take place. There are so many things in our Christian lives, if we, if we knew what they, what they involved, we'd be so distracted, we'd never be able to commit ourselves to them. And so Jesus leads us on gently, doesn't He? I love that word of Isaiah chapter 40, that he carries his lambs in his bosom. Yes, then there comes a time when they are no longer little lambs, and he, he lets them down, and they have to stagger about, but uh, they need to learn to walk. 
They can't be carried in the bosom all the days of their lives. And we do need to learn to be able to withstand difficulties and trials, but for the moment, they're tender shoots. They need protected. That's why I haven't told you, says Jesus. It's breaking your hearts that I'm telling you now. Think what it would have done to you if I told you six months ago or a year ago that this was what lay ahead. You would have been scandalized. You would have stumbled. You wouldn't have been able to keep going with me. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Christian life, isn't it? That uh, often we look back on things the Lord has brought us through And we know that if we had known in advance what He would take us through, we would have been so paralyzed, we we wouldn't have been able to reach out our hands and hold His hand. But we see His perfect timing. We should be glad that we don't know everything that lies ahead, because some of it we might not be able to bear. And the principle here is a very simple principle. We don't receive from Jesus Christ tomorrow's grace today. He gives us what is sufficient for us today in order that He may lead us on and build us up for tomorrow. So, He explains to them why He's telling them now. He explains to them why he didn't tell them before. And then the third question I think he answers is this, and it's the big question. Jesus, why do you have to leave us at all? Why do you have to leave us at all? Of course, part of the answer to that question is because I've come into the world to leave you. I've come into the world to die on the cross for your sins and then rise and bring you new life. That that would have been a true answer. But he focuses on one part of our big answer here when he says, if I don't leave you, he says, then the Holy Spirit will not come to you. It is to your advantage, he says, notice in verse 7, It is for your good that I'm going away, because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go away, then he will come to you. Now, what's he mean here? Well, what he means here is that God has a great plan. The Father has planned how he will save sinners. The Son has come in order to die for sinners. But the third part of that plan is what the Holy Spirit will do when Jesus has died and risen again for sinners. And that's what he's saying here. It's not the only reason or the total reason why he has to go, but it's the reason that he wants them to focus attention on now. He says, it is actually for your good. It is to your advantage that I go away. So, of course, there's another unspoken question arises, I think. 
wherein lies the advantage. And Jesus gives us the answer. He says, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world of sin because I'm going to the Father. He'll convict the world of righteousness, and He will convict the world of judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What's what's He talking about here? He's saying when the Spirit comes, something that you have not yet seen, my disciples, you will see. And when you read these words, think day of Pentecost. When you read these words, think day of Pentecost. When the Spirit comes, which He did on the day of Pentecost, He would convict the world of sin. Isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost? They realized they didn't have a Savior they realized they didn't believe in the Savior God had sent. They had crucified Him. And so, they were convicted of their sin. They were also convicted of His righteousness. That actually was a great theme in Peter's preaching, that God had vindicated the Lord Jesus by raising Him from the dead, and therefore, the people were in the wrong. The people lacked righteousness. And he would also convince them of judgment to come, because in his resurrection from the dead, he had demonstrated his power over the powers of darkness and of death that had held him down. And if that was the case, if he had defeated the powers of death and darkness and condemned them. They who condemned Jesus now themselves stood condemned. And all of this, this is, this is really just a prophecy of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And what happened? The day of Pentecost actually is less about the Holy Spirit than it is about the Lord Jesus. What's happening on the day of Pentecost is the Holy Spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus. And as the people see Jesus as He really is, they're convinced of their sin. They're convinced of His righteousness and their lack of righteousness. They are convinced of His victory over the powers of darkness and death which he has condemned. And therefore, since they have been on the side of the powers of darkness, they stand condemned as well. And so, they cry out on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? Three thousand of them cry out, what must we do? Peter says that they are to repent and be baptized. They're to trust in Jesus and they'll receive the forgiveness of sins. They've no idea what he's talking about. It's just a matter of weeks when it will all be clear to them. This never happened during Jesus' ministry. Never happened during Jesus' ministry. Thousands of people were fed 
but left utterly unconvicted of their sin and their need of a Savior. But the third part of the divine purpose, following the Father's plan and the Son's coming, is the way in which the Spirit will bring this home to the consciences of men and women, then on the day of Pentecost, in every future generation, and either quietly or dramatically, either in ones and twos or in large numbers, suddenly people realize their situation is so different from what they thought. And although they despise Jesus and despise those who followed Jesus, they're brought to realize their need of Jesus and they come to trust in Jesus. So, it's good that Jesus goes in relationship to what the Spirit will do in the world, but it's true also in relationship to what the Spirit will do in the apostles in verses 12 and 13. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when the Spirit comes, He'll lead you into all the truth. Now, just in parenthesis here, we are not in the upper room. So, don't take this verse as though it could mean Jesus is saying to me, somewhere or another, He's going to lead me into all the truth. No, He's saying that to the apostles, not to us. We weren't there. So, what does it mean? Well, he goes on to explain, doesn't he? He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. Now, he doesn't tell you individually what is yet to come. You can't go home and write the book of Revelation the way John eventually would write the book of Revelation. He's speaking to them. And he's explaining to them that the advantage they'll gain from the Spirit's going is that actually they'll understand Jesus far better than they ever did. And not only so, but as we see throughout this farewell discourse, actually Jesus is preparing them to write the New Testament for us so that there is a sense in which the Spirit leads us into the truth but not because we were in the room, but because we've got access to what those who were in the room put into our New Testament Scriptures. And He shows us things to come, not because we have blinding revelations and say, I have seen the future, but because we've got it here in the Word that Jesus gave to us through the Apostles. And that's a huge advantage. You know, if the apostles had never written the New Testament, we'd all be making up our own form of Christianity, wouldn't we? You ever been at a party where somebody whispers in somebody's ear a little sentence and says, now, just pass it on, and you can have 20 university graduates all with PhDs in the room, marvelous memories, by the time the whole thing's finished, it's completely garbled. The same thing could have happened to the gospel. But in Jesus' purposes, it is going to be to the advantage of the whole church that the Spirit will 
enable these men to lead us into all the truth the way Jesus led them into all the truth by giving them his word. That's an unspeakable advantage. Ever crossed your mind, Jesus? We know Jesus could write and read. We know he could read because he read in the synagogue. We know he could write because we are told, at least in one place in the New Testament, he wrote on the ground. And, uh, of course, he may just have drawn on the ground, uh, googled on the ground, but perhaps he wrote a word on the ground, but he never wrote a book. He never wrote a book. David Robertson has written a million times more than Jesus of Nazareth ever wrote, but Jesus wrote the book through the apostles so that it really would be not only to their advantage, but to our advantage that he went and sent the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's why it's not only to their advantage in relationship to what they'll see in the world. And it's really amazing to think these apostles saw something that the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, never saw during three years of his ministry. That's what he meant when he said, you'll see greater things than anything you've seen me do. He never saw 3,000 people baptized on the same day. He never saw 3,000 people crying out, Jesus, what must we do to be saved? Maybe a blind Bartimaeus here and another man there but 3,000 on the same day and multiple thousands to follow in the same city. And then he says, and here's the great thing the Spirit will do when he comes. He says, the Spirit will come and he will bring glory to me, verse 14, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you and all that's mine that he will make known to you, verse 15, is what belongs to the Father. Now, just, just stop and, and think about this pattern. You see what he's saying? He's saying everything that's mine, the Spirit will make known to you. But everything that's mine actually belongs to the Father. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now, you see what he's saying? He's saying, my disciples, I'm sending you out into a world. Remember how he earlier said was a world that doesn't recognize the Spirit. And how he's just taught them that world doesn't know the Father. And that world doesn't trust in me. The world doesn't know the Father, it doesn't trust the Son, and it doesn't recognize the Spirit. But what's going to happen when the Spirit comes is that you're going to be brought into fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit is going to show you my glory, and you will see that everything that belongs to me belongs to my Heavenly Father. I think I can put it simply like this. The non-Christian doesn't know the Father, 
The non-Christian doesn't know the Savior, and the non-Christian doesn't know the Holy Spirit. But the weakest Christian, the most fearful Christian, experiences the ministry of the Holy Spirit, glorifying the Savior, and the Savior who is glorified says, now come with me, and I will show you the wonders of the grace of my heavenly Father. From one point of view, you know, you might want to say to Jesus, if you wholly misunderstood him, could you not have told them something practical? Could you not have told them something practical? What you've told them, can I put it this way? What you've told them is that they need to know that God is Trinity. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of us thought, but the fact that God is Trinity is surely the most speculative and the least practical of all the doctrines of the Christian faith it doesn't really make any difference to you. And I think what Jesus is saying is this, that knowing Him as your heavenly Father, seeing His glory as the Savior, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit is actually what radically transforms everything in your life for this simple reason that you're living in a world of men and women who do not know God. And you, by His grace, have come to know God. So, there are two things here, I think. One is this. There are times in our lives, I think many times in our lives, when we wished Jesus spoke and he remains silent. And it's only afterwards that we understand it was better for us that he remain silent because we could not have borne the realities through which, by his grace, he has brought us. And the other thing to learn is this, that nothing is more clearly calculated to bring us through everything than that we know God, that we know Him as our Father, that we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that we know the Holy Spirit as the one who shines on the Lord Jesus and makes us love Him and then transforms us into His wonderful likeness. It's really, it's kind of amazing to me. We live in a how-do-you-do-it world, don't we? We hunger and thirst, even as Christians, we hunger and thirst for uh, five things I need to do in order to be a really strong Christian. There are actually only three things you need to do to be a really strong Christian. Know the Father. Know the Savior. 
nor the Spirit. And at the end of the day, that's really one thing. It's knowing the Lord. Remember reading about uh, a man, almost unknown man in the history of the Christian church, but he happened to be a friend of St. Columba. And so, uh, by extension, he basks in the glory of the famous Columba. And he was an evangelist. His name was Brendan of Burse. And he was evangelizing a pagan king in Ireland. And the pagan king said to him, so what's in it for me if I and my people become Christians? And he gave this answer. He said, if you stumble upon Jesus Christ, you will experience wonder upon wonders and every wonder true. And actually, there's no more wonderful wonder, is there, than this. Here we are, a bunch of absolute nobodies, but we know God. We dare to call Him Abba, Father. We see the glory of Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for His honor. And the kind of odd thing is this, that it's in this context that Jesus is saying, I have a lot more to tell you, but you're not really able to bear it. And you really want to say, don't you, Lord, this is quite enough for one night, quite enough for one night, wonder upon wonder, and every wonder true. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you, for, thank you for, in your word, giving us the privilege of, of being more than observers of this upper room discourse of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the same Jesus with us tonight by his Spirit as he was in the upper room cares for us as he cared for his disciples, wants us to know the truths he taught his disciples. We thank you that the Lord Jesus through them has given us this precious word that we may know what they know and learn from Jesus what he taught them. Oh, we pray that all our lives we may know the stability and the wonder of the communion of the Holy Spirit leading us to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to experience the love of the Heavenly Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. 
Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.